Keeping Democracy Alive. I'm Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So, yes, there's a huge there? gap between public opinion and public policy. Wait, I'll keep it just... That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not a drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dig- dig- dignity of man. Ah, yes, and the U.S. is always the one to enforce the dignity of man. Yeah, Lyndon Johnson got that right. No, he didn't. Well, you know, it does amaze me how little we learn from history. Iraq has been a bit of a problem. And, you know, the country of Iraq actually is less than 100 years old. But it may be just about finished. At last count... 4,491 Americans lost their lives there. Many thousands more lost limbs. And between, oh, say, a half a million and one million Iraqi citizens, including over 100,000 civilians, died from that U.S.-started conflict. Twelve years after the American invasion, the government we helped to install and preserve is exceedingly weak. A headline in the June 4th New York Times says, ISIS making political gains group stakes claim as protector of Sunnis. What is going on in Iraq? Well, our guest today is Peter Van Buren, who asserts that Iraq will never be whole again. Peter, thanks very much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Bert, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, Peter Van Buren served in the State Department for 24 years, and he's the author of We Meant Well, how I helped lose the battle for the hearts and minds of the Iraqi people. A look at the waste and mismanagement of the Iraqi reconstruction. His latest book is Ghosts of Tom Joad, a story of the 99%. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Peter. ISIS didn't exist just a few years ago. It's been suggested that they only came about as a result of the unpopularity of the U.S.-installed government, the government of Nuri al-Maliki, has been replaced. Did that not help? Is the growth of ISIS reflective of the overall weakness of the Iraqi state in 2015? The growth of ISIS is directly tied to the American invasion of 2003 and the aftermath of that. There's a bit of a history that's uh, important here because many of the mainstream media present ISIS as this sort of weed that popped up in the garden one day. Um, and we had no way to have stopped it and no idea where it came from. Back in the day in Iraq, around 2006, uh, during the surge, the United States created an entity called the Sons of Iraq, Sawa in in Arabic, which was basically a two-part deal. We paid off the, the Sunnis to stop killing us, our American soldiers, and to also break with al Qaeda in Iraq. Al-Qaeda had been there protecting the Sunnis from the Shias. The other half of that deal, that worked. 
The other half of that deal, however, was that the Iraqi Shia government was supposed to take over the program and eventually transform it into a integration program for the Sunnis to bring them into government more actively and to find jobs for the Sunni militia people so that they would not be militia people, but instead would be uh, computer programmers and street sweepers and, and, and what have you. That part failed completely under the Iraqi government, which was led by Maliki, but was in fact strongly administered by the United States. Um, ISIS is the successor to al-Qaeda and the inevitable successor, given how poorly the first version of this Sons of Iraq plan worked out. Hmm. Yeah, we don't we don't get told a lot of history that really matters. We miss a lot of things. We just get this official narrative, and oftentimes we're surprised by what happens because we don't really get told the truth. Ah, and we're talking with Peter Van Buren, and his uh, most recent article is uh, "Iraq Will Never Be Whole Again." What's next? Well, America's latest man in Baghdad is Prime Minister Hadir al Abadi. How legitimate? in terms of popular support, is this government of Iraq now? How secure is his power? Well, there's, there's several answers to, to that question, depending on which uh, point of view you, you want to choose. Yeah. Um, the Shia government, which is essentially running Iraq right now, is very popular among the majority Shias. Yeah, right. I don't know the statistics anymore because an awful lot of Sunnis... Uh, have left or been killed off, but it's, it's probably roughly 80% Shia, uh, give or take. Um, it's a soft number, but, but give it, give it uh, sure. for argument here. Large majority. They're very happy with the Shia government. Abadi is really just a, a figurehead. It doesn't really matter who's in charge. He uh, was one of Maliki's deputies. He's strongly tied to Iran. He's just a more uh, photogenic, if you will, version <laughs> of Maliki. He knows the right things to say around the United States. Um, he knows to kind of say one thing to his domestic audience uh, and one thing internationally. Maliki sort of wasn't that good at that. Um, he's not very popular <laughs> among the Sunnis because he is attempting to hunt them down and uh, kill them, uh -huh. um, using well, yeah. Iranian forces on his side and also using the Shia militias now as replacements for the uh, impotent Iraqi army. The United States seems to like him only because he's the greatest, uh, the current, I should say, great hope uh -huh. that uh, something good will happen in Iraq. So I suspect Abadi will stay in power, per se, for, for quite some time. Keep in mind that he is under the control of the Iranians uh -huh. to a certain extent, and he's certainly beholden to the many Shia leaders and Shia militias. And so he's far, far, far from his own man, a, a leader, uh, a person who can sort of make things happen on his own. Um, and the United States will continue to, to screw up its policy by believing he's anything different. And so he is a Shia. Iran is Shia. In the Iran-Iraq War of 1980, where a lot of people were killed, and the government that the U.S. was in quite cozy with Saddam Hussein. He was Sunni, correct? Saddam Hussein was a, a Sunni in name, ah. but he was mostly Saddam Hussein. <laughs> and he, um, he, he ran an organization called the Ba'ath Party, which right. just 
parenthetically is sort of a really dumb name. It, it just doesn't translate well into English, and yeah. it's spelled with two A's, and it just looks bad. So we're glad he's gone. Um, <laughs> back to back to more serious things. So Saddam Hussein was ostensibly a Sunni, and he certainly uh, brought the Sunnis to his side and, and favored them so that they would support him. But he was largely Saddam. Um, the Iranians are Shias, right? And but they are largely Iranians. They uh-huh. are involved in Iraq less so as the crusader for the Shia cause, and more so in terms of Iranian uh, hegemony and, and Iranian uh, control sure. of, of the Iraqi territory. Right. So while the Sunni-Shia divide is, is a useful kind of shorthand uh, way to talk about these things, um, it really doesn't get down into the complexities of these relationships. And certainly any expert on Iraq or on Islam will tell you that under the heading of Sunni or under the heading of Shia, there are many, many, many uh, subgroups, um, some more religious-based, some more politically-based. So if, as long as we keep in mind these are shorthand terms and not absolute black and white like Soviet Union versus the United States, um, I think they're handy to use. Well, it's interesting. I read a very fascinating book called The Peace to End All Peace by David Frumkin about uh, the British experience at the, well, helping to destroy the Ottoman Empire, of which all mm-hmm. this territory was once a part, and the British could never figure it out. And the, and I think it's similar today, a hundred years later, that, you know, as you say, it's not black and white. It's not. There's a bunch of tribes here. It's a completely yep. different arrangement than fits our convenient narrative, and we just refuse to get that. And I, I wonder, you know, there's been a lot of bombing you know, of the Islamic State. Uh, And the U.S. and some allies, what what you refer to as the much-ballyhooed pan-Arab coalition against the (laughs) Islamic State, what is the status of that, the ballyhooed pan-Arab coalition against the Arab State as a either a military or political force in Iraq? The uh, pan-Arab State is mostly a photo op. It it exists. (laughs) mostly in the mind of, of the United States uh, at this point, and it exists mostly for cosmetic purposes. Oh Many Arab countries do have a hand in what's going on in Iraq, even more so in, in Syria and, and Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And if you include the Iranians, who of course are not Arabs but play in the same sandbox, <laughs> um, they're deeply involved in all of these conflicts and countries as well. The, the myth back uh, about a year ago or so... Um, because remember, the United States re-engaged in Iraq uh, in August of, of last year. Oh, right. um, the myth was that America was going to create this Middle Eastern coalition, along with you know our usual uh, uh, accomplices, you know the Brits, the Canadians, uh, whatever. Um, the French now, for some reason, are back on, on our good side. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea was that that this was going to be an Arab fight; that they were the ones who primarily were going to deal with with. Islamic State. They were the ones who were going to settle uh, Syria for us. And the idea was it was their problem, their neighborhood, right. and uh, we were just going to be the glue that, that held all this together. Once again, it quickly devolved into an American foreign policy fantasy. The uh, Arabs had their own games uh, to play, their own motivations, their own goals. 
um, very few of which really coincided with what the United States uh, wanted. Saudi Arabia is a perfect example. Right. They are extreme. Their primary goal is to rebut Iranian power. Right. And so the United States is currently supporting the Iranian ground forces in Iraq because our primary goal supposedly is to destroy ISIS. The Saudis have no interest in supporting the Iranian ground forces and find themselves serendipitously supporting ISIS, at least in, in Iraq, and acting counter to uh, American foreign policy aims, even as they purport to be part of the coalition, and even as America claims them as a uh, important partner in the coalition. The Iranian thing, I guess, exposes the, the utter lunacy, I guess, of all this. Where <laughs> I was trying to think know, of a word. I, 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 go ahead. I mean, lunacy is sort of the, the one that comes to mind, but I'm sure there, there, there are better words, and I know you, you run a family show here, so I want to be careful what, uh, what words I choose. It's um, messed up, yeah. Messed up, we'll agree on. Good. Um, that's why you get paid the big bucks here, Burton. Oh, yeah. And I don't. Um, right. But, you know, the idea that, that America, who doesn't want Iranian power to grow in, in the Gulf region, is, in fact, helping Iranian power grow in the Gulf region mm-hmm. by being the Iranian Air Force, for all practical purposes, in Iraq. Wow. Who? So, yeah. yeah. Uh, allegedly, the, enough strange bedfellows and in, 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 in interim agreements and funny coalitions, and before you know it, it's a mess. It certainly is a mess, and I feel like, you know, there have been a lot of messes in history, and, you know, Vietnam was supposed to be so neat, you know, the U.S. versus the Russians. Right. Well, it didn't quite exist like that, and I'm reminded when Lyndon Johnson said, you know, we don't want our boys doing the job that the Vietnamese boys ought to be doing. It sounds exactly familiar now, except without, I mean, the Vietnamese they didn't have any motivation to fight. And we've heard about Iraqi troops, again, no motivation to fight at all. They just, you know, they, they just, they get paid for it, but then they lay down their weapons and, and take off. And I don't think it's a reflection on their, uh, uh, you know, co- courage or anything. It's just, what's their motivation? Now, and the alleged coalition that, that we talked about has dropped thousands and thousands of bombs on the ISIS fighters. Yet, ISIS keeps growing. How much has that policy actually worked would american boots on the ground help turn the tide a couple of points first it's important to note that 85 percent of the uh, airstrike of the air missions flown over iraq and syria are flown by the united states right i don't know the exact number because no one wants to talk about the exact number but a good chunk of the remaining 15 percent are either uh, things like tanker missions that don't involve any risk or, or any significant risk, and they may be flown by uh, Arab nations it's to keep appearances yeah. up. Or they're, they're strike missions flown by the British or, or the French or, or one of our Canadians or one of our other, other partners. So the Arab involvement is, is nearing zero uh, in this. As far as effectiveness is concerned, you have to come to the conclusion that it's the empirical conclusion that it's not very effective. Right. ISIS seems to be doing quite quite well, thank you very much. Um, they still hold uh, the significant parts of the territory that they took. Mosul uh, in 
particular, Fallujah in particular, and they recently uh, conquered uh, Ramadi, which is a, a major yeah, city. Um, ISIS seems to have no problem, and they're doing very well in Syria uh, as well, um, where they hold probably half the country uh, at this point in time. Mm. They don't seem to have any problem uh, arming themselves, financing themselves, or mm. recruiting uh, more and more people to fight with them. Yes. They're facing whatever the United States wants to throw at them. They're facing whatever the Iranians uh, decide to throw at them, and they're, they're doing quite well. As far as boots on the ground, right. again, we have uh, some plenty of empirical uh, evidence to look at, primarily the fact that the United States had a lot of boots on the ground yes. um, from 2003 to 2011 and was unable to conquer uh, Iraq uh, in any kind of meaningful way. At the peak of the surge, we had 166,000 American troops in Iraq. Um, if you want to be specific, each of them had two legs, and so there's twice as many boots if, uh, if yeah. we're going to use that as a measure. But, I mean, yeah. the, the point is, sarcasm aside, is that, that, that we had 166,000 troops, uh, and we couldn't get it done. Right. If sending in a few more or some more or 166,000 more is unlikely to do anything different than what we failed to do the last time we had that significant number of troops uh, on the ground there. So, no boots. And I do find it interesting. Of course, the Republican candidates for president, of which there are, what, about 50 or so? They're all calling for more <laughs> boots on Rick their Perry ground. just announced, so 51. Oh, God. Yeah. What was that question again? <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it. Uh, we are talking on Keeping Democracy Alive with our guest today, Peter Van Buren, who served in the State Department for 24 years as the author of We Meant Well, How I Helped Lose the Battle for Hearts and Minds of the Iraqi People. And in your article, you suggest that ISIS may be interested in trading land for time. What, what do you mean by that? Um, I'm not sure they want to do that. They're, they're very happy to be successful and, and to hold territory, but they have that option. Right now, ISIS is fighting in a way that's kind of halfway between a conventional army in, in that they conquer territory and they hold it and they administer it. They act as the garbage men and mayor and, and police force. Um, and, and an insurgency where they do hit-and-run attacks such as car bombs and then disappear. If the Iranian ground forces were to kick it up a couple of notches um, and really send in heavy weapons and what have you, whatever was going to be necessary to push back against ISIS as a conventional army, they have the ability to morph into an insurgency um, and continue the fight that way. That involves trading territory for time. In other words, rather than get into a situation in, say, Ramadi, where large numbers of their fighters are going to get killed in, in the face of overwhelming uh, Iranian and militia uh, armaments, they just pull back. And they fade a little bit, and they switch to more uh, car bombs and fewer uh, artillery uh, barrages. And they can work their way back all the way to the Syrian border, if necessary, uh, as an insurgency, and draw this thing out for a very, very, very long time. Their position in Syria seems a lot more secure uh, in the long term than it does uh, in Iraq. And so the idea of ISIS being destroyed, which President Obama has declared is, is the goal and policy of the United States, right. seems, we'll be polite and say, unrealistic. Mm. 
Mm-mm. And Syria, you know, the, the whole idea that Obama was pushing for arming moderate rebels. How do you control where the weapons go? I just... <laughs> In Syria, you know, it just it seems kind of nuts. And and Iran, you know, they're a very big country, much much bigger than than Iraq. What I wonder what they think about it, and what they what you see on is their interest and in, in their future coming out of this thing as Iraq perhaps falls apart. Well, the Iranians owe us a fruit basket at this point in time, or you know, some Amazon gift cards or something, <laughs> because the they have accomplished more with American help than they ever, ever could have done alone, or certainly could have done if the Americans opposed them. When I was in Iraq, uh, the Iranians were the big secret enemy. Um, Iranian special forces were, were physically present in Iraq, and the Iranians were supplying the only variety of IEDs that was still able to penetrate our uh, armored vehicles by uh, that point late in the war. We had figured out how to get around and, and protect ourselves from pretty much anything the Iraqis could uh, gin up. But the Iranians were sending in weapons that, that could still kill us, and that was what made everyone worried. And the United States was in a shadow war with Iran at that time in Iraq. And now, not only are we passively allowing the Iranians to dominate the battlefield, to send in soldiers and tanks and, and, and leaders, but we're helping them. We're actually flying uh, air missions on their behalf. Um, the United States denies it, but it seems unlikely that we're not supplying them with some form of, of intelligence and overhead imagery and the things that are mm-hmm. necessary to, uh, to fight this war. So the Iranians have essentially turned Iraq into a client state um, Mm. with our help and with our our permission, if you will. And that only increases their power in the Gulf in general. At the same time, American support for Iran has driven uh, something of a wedge. It's arguable how much of a wedge in between the United States and Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf allies uh, who have generally been on America's side in these things. Obviously, they've got their own games and goals, but we've done a lot of things that have made American foreign policy work a little better in the Gulf area. And that wedge now exists, and it's unclear how that will will play out over time. Um, Iran gets stronger. Power in in this part of the world is not a a zero, is is something of a zero sum. I mean, Uh, if Iran gets stronger, that means somebody else is is getting weaker. And... uh, when it, that weakness affects American aims and America's ability to, to cause things to happen, it's not a good thing. So the Iranians do owe us, um, and like I said, I hope uh, hope it's a fruit basket. Yeah, and the Saudis got to be pretty nervous because I think their my sense is their hold on power is somewhat tenuous anyway. They have all the money, but a lot of yeah, they're, they're nervous. But lo- looking to the future, you know, there didn't used to be in Iraq. My understanding, it was part of Mesopotamia, and these lines literally in the sand, were drawn up by the Western powers, essentially in 1919. Some questions, just to close out. Has it ever really been what could be called a nation? Let's go with that one first. You know, the terms get a little slippery, but I think the the salient point is, is what you said. The current borders of Iraq were drawn artificially uh, at the end of, after World War I, right. 
when the Ottoman Empire, which had held this part of the world together, more or less, um, when the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire was dissolved, right. and the British and the French in particular sat down and said, well, let's, let's divvy this all up. Right. Uh, and the French got areas that they were going to be in control of, and the British got areas that they were going to be in control of. And the Iranian borders ended up looping in these disparate groups. We haven't had a chance to talk about the Kurds yet, wow. but their part they became part of an Arab state called Iraq that they had no connection to whatsoever right. and have been a uh, source of, of problems, if you will, for that Arab state uh, ever since. The whole Sunni-Shia thing brought in groups that exist across the current national borders. Uh, right. For example, the way ISIS has carved out a territory that includes parts of Syria and parts of western Iraq is much more in line with the actual ground right. truth of where the Sunnis live than it is with any kind of borders that were drawn by bureaucrats. The same thing with the Kurds. Their, their sort of ethnic national group includes territory that is now in Iran, Iraq, and Turkey. Yes. And that is sort of their natural boundary right. where their sort of national boundaries actually end up will be a source of, of, of conflict, political, military, or, or otherwise. And it's certainly, uh, they, they certainly are a nation. Well, as you write, uh, the war of Iraq, I mean, the Iraq of 2003 is gone, the Iraq of 2014 is gone. Might what's now called Iraq, like the former Soviet Union, now dissolve into its component parts? I remember Joe Biden in, in 2007, when he was running for president, talked about enabling Iraq to divide into three separate states. Is that more likely now, do you think? And would that be okay? I think for all intents and purposes, Iraq is three states right now. We'll call them statelets um, to get away from any formal definitions of, of, okay. of these things. I mean, they're not going to carry flags, three different flags in the Olympics anytime soon. Right. But they, they, are, they are essentially statelets. Um, there's a Sunni statelet, a Shia statelet, and a Kurd statelet. And, and these exist now. Pretending they don't really is just ignoring reality. If the United States wanted to truly do something that would quote-unquote resolve the problems in Iraq, it would be to recognize this reality and work toward, and gosh, I'm not quite sure at this point exactly what form this would take, work toward some way of disengaging these three statelets from one another um, and, and see if, in fact, Something like a Yugoslavian situation, right. imperfect as that, that is and imperfect as it will be in Iraq, might be a way to sort of safely land this broken airplane. Hmm. Interesting. Well, just as there was a Marshal Tito, who it was only he, the dictator, who could hold Yugoslavia together. It's a whole bunch of separate nations. I, I wonder if Saddam Hussein was the only guy who could hold that together. You're tempted to come to that conclusion, and again, this is not just speculation, right. it's in fact what happened. Iraq, uh, for its uh, history, such as it was, was held together uh, for a long period of time by Saddam Hussein. Um, we know he's a bad guy, we know all the terrible things he did, we're talking now third party, third person geopolitically, uh, it was held together. As soon as the United States 
got rid of Saddam Hussein in 2003, it fell apart, and it stayed fallen apart uh, ever since. I don't think at this point you can get enough of the toothpaste back in the tube mm. that there's mm-hmm. such a thing as an autocratic dictator that could pull it back together. I, again, yeah. I think yeah. the disillusion is, is inevitable. It's already happened slash happening and what's best at this point is to manage that conclusion, right? Um, because this marriage is over. It's really just a matter of how we handle uh, the breakup. Oh my goodness! And I, I wonder if there's any people anywhere in the State Department that are looking at that reality, or if they're just guided by political expediency. I don't know. And this, and the narrative that has been out there for so long. I know you have to run, Peter Van Buren. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, he's the author of We Meant Well, How I Helped Lose the Battle for the Hearts and Minds of the People of the Iraqi People, and also The Ghosts of Tom Joad, A Story of the 99%. Anything else on the web to which you can point people? Uh, my blog at wemeantwell.com is always uh, where my stuff uh, is posted. If anybody uh, was, would care to, to read more about what I've got to say about Iraq or anything else, and I'm on Twitter at at we meant well. So uh, come find me, and uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to engage one another uh, on social media. That would be nice, and maybe some presidential candidate will bother to take a look as well. That would be nice. So far, nobody's returned my calls, but I keep holding out here, Bert. All right. Well, we'll see what we can do. Thanks very much, uh, Peter, uh, Peter Van Buren, for being with us. Stay with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks a lot, Peter. My pleasure. Enough living with war, don't you think? It's uh, such a horrible situation. It doesn't have to be like that. Well, talk about not having to be like that. Our democracy is in a little bit shaky, shall we say, uh, because of all the money in politics. And it's been five years since the fateful Citizens United decision and one year since the McCutcheon Supreme Court decision, which really just aggravated the problem of huge amounts of hidden money in electoral politics. Democracy itself has been greatly undercut by these decisions. The power of big moneyed interests 
has overtaken the power of the people. And, you know, we had a war of independence in 1776 to do away with government by aristocracy and establish a government of, by, and for the people. I know, how quaint. What our founders fought to create is being seriously eroded, and we more, are far more close to a plutocracy than a Republican form of government today. Well, a number of approaches are being taken to restore democracy, such as a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. Another approach is being taken, that is to put pressure on the president to sign an executive order requiring disclosure of political spending by government contractors. Some members of Congress have signed a letter to the president urging him to do just that. So far, it's been signed by Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, Al Franken, Tom Udall, Liz Warren, and, of course, Bernie Sanders. An organization called Democracy Leaders is working to have citizens get in touch with their own members of Congress, citizens, that's you, urging them, urging their members to sign on and to build the pressure. Our guest today is, is uh, Jonah Minkoff-Zern, co-director of Public Citizens Democracy is for, the, is for People campaign for a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. And he's a longtime organizer who has founded numerous organizations, uh, including uh, oh, so many uh, protests against the IMF World Bank in 2000. And he uh, co-founded Education Not Incarceration, which has done some grassroots organizing to prevent students from being pushed out of the education system and into the prison system. Thanks so much, Jonah, for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me, Kurt. Tell us about the problem of political spending by government contractors. Paint a picture, if you will, of how political spending by government contractors works, please. Sure. Well, so since Citizens United, um, corporations can not only spend money, um, and and they always have spent a tremendous amount of money lobbying, um, but now because of the Citizens United Supreme Court ruling, corporations can also spend um, tremendous amounts of money to influence the outcome of elections. Um, And corporations don't want to let us know that they're doing that because we might be angry about the impact that they're having. For example, you know, Lockheed Martin spends $15 million a year on lobbying. Uh, they're the biggest federal uh, contractor. So how much money are they spending? Uh, we don't know to, to try to elect or defeat uh, certain candidates. Um, you know, another example, there was a, a very specific example of a, um, of a, a military a fighter being cut out of military budget. Um, and all of a sudden, it, there was legislation introduced to reintroduce that fighter uh-huh. um, by the same congressperson who later it was revealed, and, and actually I'm not sure how we got this source, but it was revealed that he had received a large contribution from the maker of that uh, of that fighter uh, that that they wanted it back. They wanted it back in service. So basically, it's a pay-to-play situation um, between uh, 2007 and 2018. Um, there, it was the top 200 corporations who received uh, federal contracts uh, spent about $5.8 billion in lobbying. <laughs> so this is not their campaign contribution, it's their, their lobbying money. Uh, during the same time, they received $4.4 trillion from the federal government. So that's a pretty big return on their investment. It's $760 in return for every dollar they spent in lobbying. So we can just imagine what they're doing um, in campaign contributions now, uh, though we can't tell, and that's what we need as a first step. Wow, that is a pretty good return. I, you know, I'd like a return like that for every dollar invested, seven hundred sixty dollars back, and that's that's 
just is that to the lobbyists just to clarify to the lobbyists and or is it also political campaign contributions to members of Congress and the U.S. Senate? That was it was actually a combination of two. Uh-huh. I guess they they were spending through PACs at that point, so through having their top level employees make contributions. Um, so it was five point eight billion dollars in lobbying and campaign contributions. But um, and, I, and but also you know we have to recognize that we don't know a lot of the money coming in in campaign contributions and and the time period that was studied there in part was after Citizens United where those yeah, just went those wild. direct contributions to quote unquote independent expenditures were allowed. Um, and, you know, another example, um, an, an insurance company accidentally made a disclosure of its campaign contributions. Um, in 2014, we found out that they had given $4 million um, to, to right-wing PACs, um, trying to obviously influence the outcome of the health care debate um, and, and working to punish those who, who had fought for universal health care, who had fought for uh, more rights for, uh, you know, public health, for public health that would undermine their ability to, to make a profit as an insurance company. So and that's just one insurance company accidentally showing that it given $4 million. We, we just, the scope of this is really immense uh, that corporations are giving. Um, and, and we want, you know, we want that stopped. We want a constitutional amendment that says sure. the government has a right to regulate all sorts of campaign contributions from individuals, corporations, or unions. Um, but, but in the short term, we think sure. that, that Obama issuing an executive order requiring disclosure of federal contractors, and that's most corporations, are, are, most major corporations are federal contractors, would would both educate people um, so we could really see specifically how corporations are buying elections um, and, and buying influence, um, and also would do some level of prevention because corporations would be embarrassed to show, like Chevron, Probably well. Chevron actually. Chevron's pretty bold about their political spending. They're not a good example, but a lot of the big oil corporations wouldn't want to show um, that they're contributing to folks in order to convince them that climate change doesn't exist, or at least get them to say that. Hmm. Um, as as another example. <laughs> yeah, interesting way to make policy decisions for these currently United States. You know, that never mind uh, the common good. It's about uh, you know something as crass as. As just profit making, and to as, as you know, some people have argued that Citizens United was a good decision because, as the Supreme Court basically said, money equals speech. Well, no, as somebody put it, it's not money doesn't equal speech. Money equals a bigger megaphone. Everybody else, you know, you got virtually no money at all. You're just whispering, and there's this tremendous megaphone that's drowning out everybody. And, of course, all the members of Congress need and just depend on and are really addicted to campaign contributions. And so guess which side has been winning? We, You are listening to Keeping Democracy Alive. Bert Cohen here, our guest right now on this half, is Jonah Minkoff-Zern. We're talking about uh, the efforts, the grassroots efforts to make President Obama issue an executive order to require government contractors disclose what they're contributing to campaigns. Tell us about uh, this proposed executive order. What is it and what would it accomplish? And, and what are you doing about making it happen? Sure. So it would be Obama issuing an ex- President Obama issuing an executive order requiring um, federal contractors to disclose their campaign contributions. Not very simple and straightforward. Sure. Um, in Obama's State of the Union address, he spoke about how we have to get dark money out of politics. 
Yeah, uh, well, Obama can do that with a with a sign of his pen. Um, it's so so he needs to kind of put actions to his words. Uh, Congress again and again has refused to pass legislation. It really has been party lines, unfortunately. But the Republicans have blocked legislation that would require uh, disclosure of campaign contributions. But Obama has the power to do that for a large portion of major corporations uh, just by by requiring disclosure of federal contractors, uh, their campaign contributions. Um, it's something that was tried before, and the Chamber of Commerce got wind of it. Yeah. Um, and it was amazing the way they responded. Um, their their quote in response, uh, the the uh, the legislate the key lobbyist for the uh, Chamber of Commerce basically said that all options would, or he said all options are on the table if Obama does this, and he compared it to uh, Libya, saying that uh, basically threatening threatening violence against the president is essentially what his quote was uh, if he issued an executive order just requiring uh, corporations, a lot of them are giving to the Chamber of Commerce to disclose their campaign contributions. And, and I guess we wonder why the Chamber of Commerce is so scared uh, to have their members in the light of day, to have the major corporations like Philip Morris or, or uh, ExxonMobil or Lockheed Martin who are contributing to the Chamber of Commerce and other um, other entities uh, to disclose their donors? Why why are they so scared? And I think the answer is that if the public knew what was going on, if uh-huh. the public was aware of of this money uh, that was flowing into these uh, these institutions, it would be angry, and the corporations would be forced to stop. Uh, and the chamber doesn't want that, so that's why. They basically threatened, or not basically, they they threatened violence against the White House if uh, the White House issued this order. So it's it, it was it was dead for a few years, and we've been able to uh, get it going again. And we did that through a lot of grassroots action. Um, right uh, on April second, the year anniversary of the McCutcheon ruling that opened up more campaign contributions, uh, we organized sixty rallies around the country in thirty states, and. And also delivered over five hundred thousand petition signatures to the White House, asking them to act. Oh, and I, I should mention that there is an important distinction between your local chamber of commerce, which basically aren't bad guys, and the U.S. chamber of commerce, which, frankly, are bad guys—really, really bad guys. And uh, it's a how how could they like threaten so clearly could you just uh you know clarify that a little bit that sounds pretty amazing it's a pretty it was a pretty astounding statement that he made um and it it uh it just i don't know i mean i i, I and i agree that the local chambers and a lot of local chambers have actually issued statements right. um separating themselves. themselves separate entities from yes. the from the national chamber but the yeah the U, the US chamber of commerce is uh yeah it's uh, I'll read you the exact quote we will we will fight it through all available means Bruce Johnson, the chief lobbyist of the chamber, told the Times, hmm. um, to quote what they say every day on Libya, all options are on the table. That's his exact quote. Oh, my and goodness. It, it is pretty astounding. And you wonder if uh, the AFL president said that under the eh. Bush administration, <laughs> they would probably have the, the AFL qu- uh, crawling with FBI agents. Yeah, and probably arrested. Like that. It really is a, amazing, the kind of arrogance and also... I just how scared the chamber is over an action like this. 
Well, they, they really... It's very nice for them right now, the U.S. Chamber and their their clients, to have the U.S. government really as just their uh, wholly owned subsidiary. You know, it works so well for them, and they don't want to break that up. So you're calling on uh, the president to issue an executive order just to require this simple transparency. Are executive orders out of the ordinary, or is it something that presidents more or less routinely do? How, How out of the ordinary might an executive order be? Well, I think that, that President Obama has recognized that, uh, that, that there are things that need to get done that are not happening yeah, um, in this yeah. Congress. And you know, the most notable ones that he's issued so far have been around immigration and climate change, uh-huh. um, both making really substantial and necessary changes. Um, so this would, be, you know, this would be another step for, in, uh, for that. And he's considering a few right now, which are all really important. Um, and he's, also done, uh, he's also issued executive orders around um, police and and what uh, right. you know what arms they're allowed to be issued by the right. federal government. Right. So he's done uh, quite a few. So, sorry. So he's done quite a few. He has, um, and I think he really weighs them carefully and wants to see. And the reason that we're continuing to organize around this is he wants to see that there's there's a political will for this. Right. right that people really care about it. Um, and that's why, you know, it's so important that your listeners take action around it um, right. and, and get involved calling for the executive order and more broadly calling for a constitutional amendment. Um, you know, we think this is a, a really good win for our movement for a constitutional amendment. You know, con- our, the movement for a constitutional amendment is growing. You know, yeah. new, in New Hampshire, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham just recently in a campaign appearance made a statement calling for a constitutional amendment. So he became the first Republican wow. U.S. senator, sitting U.S. senator, uh, some of the former some former Republicans have done it, but the first sitting Republican U.S. Senator to call for a constitutional amendment. Mm. So the movement really is growing. You know, yes. Republicans are seeing uh, that it's necessary. The Democrats are fully on board. And last year, uh, 55 Democrats supported a constitutional amendment in the U.S. Senate vote, uh, which was a huge victory and a huge step for our movement. Um, so it's the movement for a constitutional amendments really making progress. Oh, yeah. But we think that this active disclosure by the president is a great short-term victory, and I really encourage everyone to get involved, uh, you know, to go to our website, democracyisforpeople.org, to find out about it, um, and just to get active. I think the way we're going to make these changes um, is showing that not only do 80% of Americans believe that fundamental uh, campaign finance reform is, is necessary, a, a US t- uh, New York Times poll just came out earlier this week saying that, but that people are willing to act on that conviction. So it's not just something that people kind of believe, but people are willing to to do something about it. And I am reminded uh, of uh, Franklin Roosevelt when he met with uh, A. Philip Randolph back in the 1940s, uh, who was uh, head of the uh, uh, Pullman Porters Union. And Roosevelt told Randolph, look, I'm with you. I want to help you. I agree with you. Now get out there and make me do it. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. The people are not powerless. You know, the the, uh, the the plutocrats want us to accept a sense of powerlessness. But as you mentioned, Jonah, we are not at all powerless. We have power. I mean, the fact that Lindsey Graham is calling for a constitutional amendment, boy, you notice some real power there. The fact that, you know, that shows it really is happening. People, you do have power. And hearing from citizens actually makes a difference. We can make 
the president. Make it easy. Make it safe for the president to do this. Make it safe for the candidates, both Democrat and Republican, uh, to do this, to call for the constitutional amendment and to issue the executive order. Uh, Jonah, what is known of the president's attitude and inclination regarding the push for an executive order so far? I mean, I think he's, I think he, I, I think exactly the, the idea that you just said, that uh, he's with us, he wants us to make him, he wants him, he wants us to make him do it. Yeah. You know, I think he, I think he's with us in principle, um, and he wants to see, you know, anytime the president does anything, anytime he opens his mouth on anything, he's going to get pushed back. Yeah. Um, so he wants to see <laughs> that there's sure. support there for him to do it. Um, and to take a stand on this, and that's what the organizing is doing. You know, that's what the hundreds of thousands of petition signatures are, and that's what this sign. We're, our main focus right now are these sign-on letters. So Senator Whitehouse is is distributing a letter um, in the Senate, and just as of yesterday, actually, uh, Congresswoman Eshoo uh, began distributing a letter in the House. So we're asking, and I would encourage everyone listening to reach out to their to your members of the House and the, to your member of the House and to your senators and ask them to sign into the letter. So, again, it's Congresswoman Eshoo's dis- distributing in the House and Senator Whitehouse that's distributing in the Senate. So so that's what we really want right now is to get as many senators um, and, and members of Congress on these letters. And I think that will really provide a lot of impetus for the White House Act. We really want him to do it by July 4th. So we're doing yeah. a big push right now to get him to act uh, by July 4th, and that's that's our our timeline for action. We're to keep going if he doesn't do it by then, but yeah. we're hoping that that's a, a date that we can get it by. Well, the idea of freedom and democracy, what a concept, making it real, getting out from under the plutocrats. You know, again, that happened in 1776, and uh, it, it's being done now. People, you know, these days, everything is done on the Internet. What what can people go to? Democracy for the people. Democracy is for the people. What will they find if they go there? Is there are there instructions? Democracy is democracy is The best way to get involved the the petition you have to click a, click a link from that site. But if you sign the petition that's up on the the main site calling for a constitutional amendment, you'll get immediate emails from us. Um, we're sending one out actually. I think today or tomorrow, uh, asking people to contact their their members of Congress about this. So sign the big petition. What's that website? Right it's on our site, uh, democracyisforpeople.org. And once you do that, you'll start getting emails from us and find out ways that you can get more and more involved. Um, and we have, as you mentioned at the beginning of the call, we have a, a group called Democracy Leaders, and these are people, about 900 people around the country who have taken some substantial action. And we have a we have biweekly calls, and people are doing organizing in their communities, and we're supporting them in doing that. Um, so it's people really, and it's exciting what people are doing around the country. You know, I'm sure all your listeners have heard about uh, the action that Doug Hughes just took in flying yes. his gyrocopter to deliver letters to members of Congress and mm-hmm. over 500, le- you know, letters to each of the members of Congress uh, calling for campaign finance reform. Uh, we have someone else who comes to Doug's. You know, Doug comes to our calls. Uh, we have someone else, uh, Rana in Florida, who is 83 years old, or, and she just marched over 400 miles, um, calling for a constitutional amendment um, in the footsteps of Granny D. Uh, uh-huh. You know, the yes. famous Granny D, who was friend of mine, yeah. who, who was 90 when she marched across the country calling for campaign finance reform. Um, but we really have a lot of people. You know, just everyday people. A lot of them who have never taken any a- action before. Who just feel like things are wrong, you know that that it's fundamentally wrong for such a small group of people to have so much power over what's happening in our country um, and are working to take action on it. 
And when, when the, as I understand it, when the Supreme Court, in their uh, Citizens United decision, they they held that there would be a regime of what they called effective disclosure to guarantee transparency. Uh, to, so that Americans could see for themselves to see who was getting how much money, uh, but it, it does that, that was like a, a premise, like a stipulation to Citizens United. But that aspect of it doesn't seem to be there. And the president, in his inaugural speech in two thousand nine, said that his would be the most transparent administration in decades. Is there, is there no? I mean, did the Supreme Court wanted there to be effective disclosure, and they, if they just ignored it. But this would, this would, you know, kind of, as we say, make it happen, correct? Yeah, and President Obama has that power, and I think that's, that it's important that people put that pressure on him, that it's not someone else. You know, I think the, you know, Republicans, again, just, to, just killed the disclosed bill, and there were a lot of fundraising emails that were sent out by Democrats um, saying, oh, look at this, Republicans are killing this disclosed bill. Um, how, you know, how dare they? Um, well, they need to... <laughs> so. So let's let's see them follow up on their words and uh, and take action around disclosure. But I, I also think it's really important to note that disclosure isn't the solution. It's a step right. along the way, um, and that we really need to get this enormous amount of money out of the political system. You know, it was you know over six over six billion dollars in two thousand and twelve in the elections. It's going to be much more this year. Um, you know, it's it's just more and more money that's flooding even the smallest level of office uh, yeah. and. And campaigns, and we can really see it a lot in the state legislators, and how really an extreme force, an extreme right-wing force, has taken over so many state legislators, yeah. and has won race, have won races where it wasn't even really expected. Um, and and as a result, you know, part of uh, the problem or part of what's happening is that people are not voting; that they feel like yeah. their voice doesn't matter. Exactly. And in the last election, it was the lowest voter turnout. I think it was seventy-eight years, mm. um, and and that's. That's the problem with this, is that the Supreme Court, in their ruling, had to say that not only is there no corruption by this money coming in, but there's not even an appearance of corruption. Um, and the voting turnout itself is a, way, is a good way of showing that people do see that there's corruption. They see that their voice is not being heard um, and are being turned away from the process. And I, that's not the answer. No. You know, uh, we have to go out and vote. We have to push for change. Um, but we also have to recognize that this, you know, this low voting turnout is a... Is a result of this problem of people of the huge amount of money that's flowing into our elections. Absolutely, and they, you know, the, the big givers, the big people who, well, the people who have the big money that that really want to own the government. They want us to give up, to feel powerless. And when we don't vote, when we just give up, we're letting them win. And we, you know, I kind of like democracy. Where this show is keeping democracy alive, a lot of people really do like democracy, and we have an opportunity to get involved and to do something. This is not all that hard. So, again, correct me if I'm wrong here. If people want to get involved in calling on their members of Congress to sign on to the letter calling for the president to issue an executive order requiring simple disclosure of government contractors, how much they give, you know, what kind of investments they're making in the government. They go to democracyisforpeople.org. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Democracyisforpeople.org. We are not at all powerless. We can do it. What, any other suggestions for what people can do, how listeners can take action? 
No, I, well, I, you know, I would just add that this is a movement right now. This is happening all over the country. Um, you know, people are marching, people are, and they, the reason that Lindsey Graham, uh, called for a constitutional amendment were activists who, who we had worked with before in New Hampshire went to one of his events, um, and they asked him the question. And that's why he did it. You know, they yes. were prepared. They were ready to go. They went there with the intention of asking that question. Um, and that's, that's why he called for a constitutional amendment. And Lindsey Graham calling for an amendment. Yeah. Um, really has been one of our biggest accomplishments so far, you know, ever since the, the U.S. Senate vote last year. Um, and the U.S. Senate vote happened because of our movement. It happened, they saw that people were outraged um, on the day of the McCutcheon ruling, you know, that further opened sure. up campaign spending. There were 150 rallies around the country. And uh, people, uh, you know, and as a result, the U.S. Senate said, we're going to take a vote on this. We see that people care about yeah. it. Um, and we got to 55 votes. Uh, which is a really big step. You know, we need 67, right. we need two-thirds majority wow. to get it through, but we're getting there, um, and I think it's a matter of time. Uh, you know, every generation has its constitutional amendment, and this one is ours. Ah, it sounds like it's going to be the constitutional amendment and requiring that executive order, and there's, you know, some time-sensitive stuff on this because you want it to happen by the 4th of July. I think that's a fabulous goal. Democracyisforpeople.org co-director Jonah Minkoff Zern. Thanks so much for being with us and doing what you can to keep democracy alive. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me, Barry. I really appreciate it. Money. Money. Money makes the world go round. The world go round. The world go round. Money makes the world go round. It makes the world go round. A mark a yen, a buck or a pound, a buck or a pound, a buck or a pound is all that makes the world go round. The clinking, clanking sound can make the world go Money makes the world go round, the clinking, clanking sound of 
money, 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 money,